the Pandavas in the forest, things have come, in a sense, full circle for them. They grew up high in the mountains, living a very, very, very simple life as young sages, yogis. And now, after enjoying all the um, opulences of a kingdom and even of an empire, they're back, in a sense, superficially where they started from. They're back in the forest living very simply. And uh, the Pandavas, compared to other major figures in Mahabharata, they're the ones who are actually able to do this without uh, losing their dharma cool, you could say. Because they, I mean, think of Karna. When Karna felt frustrated because there were no opportunities for him, let's say, to work at his level, find a profession according to his actual abilities, he responded by lying to an avatar, Parashuram, and then for no, for no good reason ever given in the Mahabharata, uh, becoming the self-declared enemy of good people, namely the Pandavas. And uh, Duryodhana, when Duryodhana or Dhritarashtra face the prospect of not losing everything, but even losing something, they respond by sort of this tiring series of attempts at assassination, stealing, usurping. The Pandavas, on the other hand, uh, going literally, well, going from riches to rags, you could say, literally, after uh, having performed the Rajasuya sacrifice and uh, having this most flourishing, happy kingdom, suddenly they're in the forest, and uh, the forest is the forest. This is, of course, very ancient ancient times, and you just can't just stop at you know, a hotel, or no hotels, no convenience stores, no nothing, it's really the forest. And so, um, Forest book, so what happens out there in the forest during all these years? For one thing, this is the main opportunity in the Mahabharata to tell all kinds of other stories. You know, they obviously have a lot of time on their hands. And uh, they, and many great sages would go to meet them there. Vyas, of course, went several times. Krishna himself met them there several times. So many, all these great personalities went to visit the Pandavas in the forest. And when the sages came to see them and to encourage them, like, don't give up hope. Uh, they would often tell them stories. And so uh, a good part of the Mahabharata is a series of stories about other places, other times, other kings, but stories which are somehow relevant to the Pandavas. And perhaps the most famous one, which I'll just tell you very briefly, is the story of, uh, just to give you an example, I'll just give you a very brief summary of it, Nala Damayanti. Uh, in fact, uh, many years ago, actually, maybe a hundred years ago, or years ago, I forget the date, but the Harvard Oriental Series, they published a reader, a Sanskrit reader called Landman's Reader, Professor Landman, and many generations of Sanskrit students have read from that reader, and it begins, the first story, of course, is, or the main story is Nalandamiyanti, it begins, Asidraja Nalanama, that there was a king named Nala. So that's the Sanskrit student from many generations all with that line. So anyway, 
this story was told to Yudhisthira because of his disastrous experience in gambling. And so Nala was also a great king who had lost everything in gambling. In fact, um, you know the story, don't you, Chandra? So I may have to ask you for a detail or two. But, but um, in fact, he, to the point, he lost everything to the point where all he had left was a single piece of cloth for himself and his queen, isn't it? And so they literally, they had to go out to the forest, the king and the queen wrapped in the same cloth. That's all they had. And uh, they were out in the forest. Now, I'll, I'll just be very brief about this. And so Nella decided that somehow his wife would not survive in the forest, and he had to f force her to take shelter with her family. And so it, he left her in the middle of the night, isn't it? He left her, and so she woke up, and there she is. And her, and her husband's gone. And she's out in the forest, and so she did take shelter with some of her relatives. And so she, again, is living as a queen. Meanwhile, Nella has all these uh, travails, and, and he ends up serving a king after many adventures and misadventures. And his wife, of course, I mean, this is a very romantic couple. This is one of the great romantic stories of the Mahabharata. So his wife determined to find him to get him back because he's very ashamed and uh, completely his spirit has been broken. And so, she, meanwhile, he learned he's learned to gamble, so he's not going to have the same kind of problem he had in the first place as he learned to gamble. And so, I think, in fact, he serves the king as a gambling teacher. And, uh, driving his chariot. And driving his chariot, yeah, I guess both. <coughs> What's that? So, the queen, so the Damayanti, in order to find her husband, with whom she was still very much in love, she declared she had a notice sent out all over the world that she's going to have a slime bar to choose a new husband. And, of course, she was very attractive. And uh, Actually, she didn't have a message sent all over the world. She just had it sent to the place where he was. <laughs> and, so, and so the king that he was serving thought, wow, dummy empty. And uh, so he had Nala drive him on the chariot to that kingdom. But when they arrived there, at the city, there was no, there were no preparations for a Swambara. When Swambars are held, you know, the whole city becomes a big festival site. And so he got there, and there's nothing. And no one even knows about it. And then it turns out, of course, that um, there is no Swambara. It was simply a trick to get him to come. And then they're united, isn't it? I mean, I mean that's a very brief version of the story. In any case, Eudistir uh, hears a story. Who told, who told Eudistir this story? One sage tells him the story to encourage him, and then and then Eustace does actually learn the art of gambling. So in the future, it, it, when he's challenged, he won't be it won't be a disaster like it was the last time. Anyway, so that that happens in the forest. Other significant events that take place in the forest: Arjuna goes to Swarga. Arjuna goes to heaven, the king, uh, the <coughs> world of Indra, the uh, administrative head of the gods, he, because Indra is actually his father. He goes up there and gets celestial weapons because uh, there's a very good possibility that there's going to be a, a world war. Uh, the Pandas don't really expect Duryodhana to hand back the kingdom when the time is up. And so Arjuna goes there and collects all these amazing celestial weapons. And there are very beautiful scenes where his, um, his, his brothers and uh, Kunti, by the way, is no longer with them. She stays behind in Hastinapur under the care of Vidura. 
because he's gotten older, and so it's, it's just the Pandavas and Draupadi. So the other Pandavas and Draupadi uh, go up into the Himalayan mountains because up, way up in the mountains there's a gateway, Swargadwara, there's actually a gateway to heaven. There's all kinds of adventures there with Bhima. And so, anyway, it's a time of all kinds of adventures, stories, and so on. Uh, but in terms of the main story, uh, at a certain point, uh, Duryodhana, he who has his spies everywhere, Duryodhana receives information that the Pandavas are in a particular forest. Was it Dvaitavan at that point? Where Duryodhana went? When you come to Kandistok. No, no, that's later. Anyway, because Duryodhana wanted to humiliate them. Yeah. And so he heard that the Pandavas were... This is, of course, in the first part of their exile, they don't have to be in hiding. And so Duryodhana, anyway, Duryodhana went there to the forest and uh, gets himself captured by a Gandharva king. By the way, the story I told you before where the Pandavas are walking along the Ganges and they meet this Gandharva who forbids them to go in the water and Arjun says, no way. Uh, we are going in the water, and so the Gandharva attacks. Arjun knocks him literally unconscious and burns up his chariot. And it's very interesting. Actually, Arjun was carrying a torch. It was getting toward the evening, and when the Gandharva first attacked, Arjun, simply with his torch, was knocking down all the weapons. Uh, very good fighter. Anyway, so it's the same Gandharva, the same Gandharva king who now arrests Duryodhana. Duryodhana loses the fight with this Gandharva. The Pandavas are, are, are there at the, arrive at the scene because Duryodhana was looking for them to humiliate them. And so, out of gratitude to Arjuna, who once spared his life, the Gandharva now releases Duryodhana. And Duryodhana, this is too much, just like Duryodhana, he's an Asura. And the Asuras aren't just, I mean, they actually do have uh, character problems. So, Duryodhana who could not stand to see Arjuna's or the Pandava's opulence and success at the Rajasuya sacrifice, now is absolutely uh, devastated that Arjuna, of all people, has saved his life. So, no gratitude, no remorse, nothing like, well, maybe I shouldn't have been trying to kill this person, you know, so many times. Maybe, maybe he's not a bad guy. Maybe we can actually work this out. No. Duryodhana is a sworn asura, so he decides that he can. He's he's basically going to commit suicide. He cannot live on the earth having been saved by Arjuna. Having been, this is like too much. So he goes into what is called a prayabhavasa, actually which means that you sit down and fast until death. This is a. This is what Drona does at one point. Uh, this, this was a technique which was sometimes employed, uh, sort of the yoga way to leave the world if you just can't stand it anymore. In which you um, you just sit down and fast, sit down like in a yoga pose and just fix your mind and fast until until you die. And that's what Duryodhana decides to do. Now, a very interesting thing happens. I find the story very interesting. A uh, the asuras. Some of the asuras who are not actually on the earth but are kind of like monitoring, sort of like command central. They're monitoring this whole invasion of the earth. They somehow mystically bring Duryodhana there. At least they bring his mind there. They, they bring him there. And they give him a pep talk. They say, like, what are you doing? Have you forgotten the mission? You know, we, we've got something to do here on the earth. You can't just, you can't kill yourself like this. And they remind him of the asura mission. 
And then he goes back and decides he's, he's, he'll live. He'll keep trying. And this is after all his friends like Karna and all his brothers had failed to convince him to stay in the world. But now after this pep talk, after this, you know, sort of uh, little therapy from other asuras that he decides to stay in the world. So that happens. Anyway, so, so the years in the forest pass. As I said, great sages visit them. Krishna often visits them. And there are many other stories told. And finally, uh, the time is up and they have to go incognito. And so they have, of course, a long discussion on where to go. They've been thinking about this. Where is the most strategic place to go? And they decide to go to the kingdom of Virat, which, uh, as far as uh, I know, as far as what scholars say nowadays, is in Rajasthan. And uh, if you know where uh, uh, Jaipur is, it's uh, just uh, not too far from Jaipur to the northeast, to the northeast of Jaipur. Anyway, they went to this kingdom of Virat. Virat also had been a friend of theirs, an ally. Of course, they went incognito, and they all disguised themselves in different ways. Uh, Yudhisthira became a counselor to the king, like a Brahmin counselor to the king, and a gambling coach, since he now mastered this art. Uh, Bhima got hired in, in, in the royal kitchen. And, you know, if you think about it practically, they couldn't have all showed up at the same time because the world knew about this. The world knew that Pandavas had been banished to the forest, they'd spent one year incognito, and everybody knew about this. So suddenly, you know, five big guys and, their, and, and the ladies show up. It would have been obvious it's them. And so, uh, without going into all the details, which are, all, which are not given in the text, but they must have intelligently done this. They didn't all show up at the same time. But anyway, Yudhisthira became an advisor of the king. Bhima worked in the kitchen. Uh, Arjuna, this is the most interesting case, Arjuna became a very effeminate uh, girls' dance teacher. And there's, and this is not a surprise, a Hindu story, that uh, he was cursed in heaven that he would have to spend one year uh, as a eunuch, uh, literally without uh, his male anatomy. And uh, so that's one story. But in any case, he became, uh, I, I'm not entirely convinced by that little story, but in any case, he uh, he did become a very, he you know, took the part of a very effeminate, here's our you know, very effeminate girl's dance teacher. Obviously, he had to be extremely feminine, if not a eunuch, uh, because otherwise the king would not entrust him to his own daughter and all these other royal girls. So he was, you know, very effeminate. In fact, he was dressed in a skirt. And he had long braided hair. And, uh, I don't know if he talked of the list. So, so this was Arjuna. And then Nakula took care of the, Nakula took care of the, uh, the horses and saw David the cows. And they spent a year incognito. And, uh, <clears throat> so what happened? The main thing that happened, they, they, they did successfully maintain their identities. Draupadi. Draupadi uh, presented herself as Sairandri, and she uh, was hired as sort of the queen's beautician. And uh, so they were living like this, but again, the problem was Draupadi's beauty. Because, or the problem, or she... She had a particular beauty which uh, somehow provoked Asuras. 
Now it turned out that the king's brother-in-law, brother-in-law was in fact an Asura. And uh, his name was Kichika. Kichika. Now Mr. Kichika was in charge of the military forces of Iran and it was actually because of him, even though he was he was quite demonic, it was because of him that Iran enjoyed a certain level of sovereignty. Even vis-a-vis the Kurus because of this very powerful commander. So Kishika uh, became quite attracted, to say the least, to Draupadi. And he was a uh, he was a jerk in the sense that you know he felt I'm in this high position, she's just a serving woman, therefore I can do anything I want with her. It, it was that consciousness. So uh, he made, he made pr- uh, proposals to Draupadi, which of course only disgusted her. And then he decided you know he would have her by force. And um, basically, so so Drobody was was of course becoming extremely concerned about this, and so she went to her husbands and spoke to them secretly. And uh, the arrangement was that Bima would take care of it. So uh, they decided that uh, Drobody would tell Kichika that she had finally succumbed to all of his attractive features and that she agreed she would in fact submit to him and they made an arrangement that in the dancing hall there was a couch in the dancing hall and that they would meet at night in the dancing hall when, when of course no one was there so not Dropity but Bima went there and there's this uh, I think which was intended to be and is a very hilarious scene <laughs> Where Kichika goes there and, you know, spewing all this uh, pseudo-love poetry. And I suppose he had flowers and he had a little box of chocolates or something. But And, of course, you know, he spent quite a bit of time with his own hairdresser that day. <laughs> so Kichika goes up to the couch and he's, again, all this, you know all these romantic words, and actually starts to caress, you know, Bima. <laughs> so Bima just, who's, you know, under this little blanket, or a big blanket, he, uh, Bima springs up, and Kijika realizes that, uh, this is not joking. <laughs> so a fight ensues, and Bima really, really doesn't like so Bhima, not only the way he kills him is kind of uh, Bhima sort of has a flair for creative killings of demons, and uh, just like with uh, the Rakshasa of Bucket, he broke him backwards. So in this case, Kichika basically pounds him into a medicine ball. Was, he um, he beats him so badly that he literally pounds his head into his body. Uh, sorry to tell you this before breakfast, but um, and pounds his arms and legs. So literally, all that's left is just this ball of flesh. And uh, again, this Kichika was extremely powerful. So when people discover the body in the morning, uh, 
they are, uh, well, you can imagine what the reaction was. Now, interestingly, because the, as a news spread that Kichikin is dead, Duryodhana, who had no idea the Pandavas were there, decided this is a great opportunity. Because without Kichika, we can easily smash the kingdom of Iran and subjugate them. So Duryodhana sees this as a wonderful political and military Duryodhana, <coughs> political and military opportunity. So he calls, you know, all his generals, uh, Bhishma, Drona, and Karna, and they're all going to go out to Virat and sort of have an easy takeover and take over this kingdom. Uh, so it turns out, though, that by this time, the arrival of Duryodhana to smash and subjugate this free state of Virata. His arrival coincides with the expiry, the, the, the end of that one year in which the Pandavas have to be incognito. When the Pandavas first entered the city of Virat, they took all their weapons, which were very dear to them. In fact, Arjun has an extremely famous bow, Gandiva, which is, of course, mentioned in the Bhagavad Gita, that it's, it's one of the most dramatic moments of the Gita in the first chapter, when Arjun is so overcome uh, by lamentation that he actually Gandivam Sangsate Astad he said the Gandiva slipping from my hand so this was famous all over the world uh, the Gandiva bow which was actually given to Arjuna by Agni Arjuna, when, when Agni gave his bow to Arjuna anyway so the so when the Pandas entered Virat uh, they they had to hide their weapons which was that was one of the, the hardest parts for them so they had to hide their weapons and so they found this tree, and it was a Shami tree. They found a tree which was just by a cremation grounds. And so according to all the superstitions and omens and, and rules and everything, this is an extremely inauspicious place, some place that no one would ever go, no one would ever want to get near this tree. And so uh, I think it was Saladay. Nabula climbed up in the tree and put the weapons high up in this giant tree. So now that the Kurus are attacking... Uh, and the year is ending. So Arjuna, Arjuna says to the prince, uh, Virat's son is Uttara, and his daughter is Uttara, who has fallen in love with Arjuna, and Arjuna's, uh, not yet, no, she hasn't, well, he's her dancing teacher. She didn't fall in love with the pretended dancing teacher, but uh, she's very attached to her, or him, or in her, whatever the dancing teacher is. Anyway, so the prince is Uttara, and he starts bragging. He's this young, swaggering prince that's probably never been in a battle in his life. And, you know, and just has all this sort of warrior hyperbole on his lips. And he's saying, oh, the, you know, the Kurus are attacking. I can defeat all of them. They're nothing compared to me. And so then Arjuna says, okay, let's go. Let's go defend the kingdom. And Uttara realized, and so Uttara starts to Thing. Well, I didn't really mean it, I was just talking. And then, uh, so Arjuna, Brihadnala was his, uh, the name he took. He sort of drags the prince in the chariot, and they go to this tree, and Arjuna gets back his weapons. And there's this great scene where Arjuna, after one year, finally has Gandiva in his, in his hands again. And uh, at that point, he, string, he strings Gandiva. And there's all these, uh, you, have to, you have to imagine, this is... Uh, according to the Mahabharata and all these literatures, back in ancient times, many, many thousands of years ago, there was actually a different and superior technology available to people. 
because of their intercourse, because of their contact with higher worlds, other planets. Uh, there was sort of like a, a technology which was not metallic, it was not type of industrial technology like the big Star Wars ship that goes overhead for three, you know, 35 minutes. It's not this industrial, metallic, machine-driven technology. It's actually based on yoga and uh, manipulating the elements, the great elements of the universe, like earth, water, fire, and so on, and chanting mantras, and so on. Anyway, so Arjun gets down these weapons, and there's always like these pulsating, glowing weapons, and, and Uttara is astonished just as he's never seen weapons like this in his life. And, of course, he doesn't know that these are the weapons of the Pandavas. Anyway, Arjun takes his bow, and the Kurus are attacking. The, two, the Kurus are actually starting to attack. Uh, because what happened is, they, 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 uh, this is a typical military strategy. I mean, Alexander used this. And that is, they sent some soldiers <coughs> off to one side and drew all the Virat's forces that way. And then, meanwhile, the main attack came straight to the city. And there was hardly anyone left there. And that's why Arjuna and, and, and Ut, you know, had to take the matter in his own hands. Anyway, so the, the crews are attacking. And when Arjuna strings his bow and, like, twangs his bow, it emits this powerful sound. And it's, it's like even the Kurus hear it. And as soon as they hear that sound, they're, like, stunned. And because all the warriors actually know that sound. They know it's the sound of Arjuna's bow. And that causes some confusion among them. Anyway, then Ar and Arjuna, by the way, is still in his dress <laughs> and uh, with his long braids. And so, so and he's driving the chariot. So he takes all these weapons and, and, and he tells, uh, and he starts driving towards the Kurus. Now, Ujra, when he actually sees all these great Kuru warriors, Karna, Bhishma, Drona, and even Duryodhana, he actually sees them. He, uh, well, I don't say he almost had an accident in his pants. I mean, he, when he actually sees all these great warriors, he's like, anyway, he's extremely frightened, and he, he tells Arjun, get me out of here, get me out of here. And Arjun keeps driving straight for the Kurus, and, and, Kur, and uh, Uttara is just, you know, in panic. He's like screaming and, and utter, he's practically hysterical, like, get me out of here, get me out of here. And Arjun just goes straight, and so finally, Arjun says here, and, and meanwhile the Kurus are watching a single chariot coming straight for them, driven by a lady in a dress with long braids. <laughs> and uh, so then Uttara, who obviously, I mean, Uttara is, is, is hysterical with fright. <laughs> so Arjuna puts him as a chariot driver, and Arjuna says, I'll take care of this. Anyway, uh, at, a point, at a certain point, he took his dress off. And Everyone realized that this is our June, and they immediately start calculating, like, "Oh my God, one year and what day is today?" And they, because, it, and so they realize that, you know, it's just about the time. So our June goes there, and for one year, actually, for I mean, he has he has like thirteen or fourteen years of this pent up anger, and and he's just like. I mean, he's, he's, he was our tune to start with, but now 14 years, 13 years of this pent-up frustration, anger, and, and he just basically completely overwhelms the Kurus. He just single-handedly just overwhelms the Kurus. No one can get near him. No one can fight with him. And uh, he, he drives them away. And at that point, it's just like when the Pandavas came out of hiding uh, at the Swayambar of Draupadi, 
it was a crisis for the Kurus. Now, perhaps even more so, because the year is up. The Pandavas completed their vow. They want their kingdom back, and uh, their their attitude is different. They're, it's not it's not the old Pandavas. Now they're hardened. They're angry. Uh, they, they don't have any qualms about you know, and, and they want their kingdom or they want war. And so, uh, anyway, at that point, uh, at that point, there's a book of the Mahabharata which describes all these different efforts at diplomacy to avoid the war. And uh, interestingly, people that only know the Bhagavad Gita often ask, like, uh, well, this is a spiritual book, why is Krishna encouraging Arjuna to fight? And of course, uh, the answer which I often give is that um, the system of government that we can observe in that ancient time is what we would call constitutional monarchy. Uh, constitutional monarchy, in which, just if you think of the Magna Carta of England, it's not absolute monarchy. Absolute monarchy is something which basically really became popular in the 1600s in Europe and uh, you know, the great example is Louis XIV, L'Etat Saint-Ouen, and it led to the French Revolution. It, it led to the end of monarchy, because absolute monarchy, uh, being sort of overreaching, absolute monarchy was oppressive and it led to the collapse of monarchy. And so previous to that, there was more of a constitutional monarchy. Uh, and in fact, if you look at the history of the Mughal Empire in India, Aurangzeb. Aurangzeb was kind of like uh, one of the great villains of history. Uh, became an absolutist monarch. He, he basically suspended all of the uh, agreements and conciliatory arrangements that had been made by previous moguls with the Hindu pop, majority Hindu population. Akbar, of course, was a, a very enthusiastic about Vedic culture. And they'd reached all these accommodations, all these you know, sort of agreements and how they could live together and so on. And uh, Aurangzeb was basically a religious fanatic, and he suspended all that. He was uh, he spent his entire, very long reign for many decades just attacking other kingdoms, and he was always at war. He was against everyone, and he wanted to basically just sort of stamp out every other religion as far as possible. And the result of this is that soon after Aurangzeb, the Mughal Empire collapsed. So you can see it in Europe, you can see it in the Mughals, you can see it in many places that if you that if you get too heavy, just like in a relationship, someone that tries too much to control another person often destroys the relationship. And so, uh, anyway, this was a constitutional monarchy which Duryodhana had violated. In most parts of the world, in most countries, someone suspending the constitution, usurping the government, would be considered reasonable grounds <coughs> Uh, for uh, armed opposition. And that was actually the case. Apart from the whole issue of the Asura invasion. In other words, it was uh, there, there were grounds which almost any reasonable person would consider to be sufficient for forceful opposition. So, um, <clears throat> anyway, the, a battle was looming. The, the Pandavas claimed their half of the kingdom. They, they didn't even, in other words, after all this undergone, they, they weren't even going to attack Duryodhana. They didn't want us to not war. They simply said, give us back what is rightfully ours. And Duryodhana refused. Duryodhana refused because he wasn't a Sura and he really didn't care about the rules. That's one of the 
main definitions of a sura, of an asura, one who doesn't care about the rules, one who doesn't care about dharma. Ultimately, he had no interest in dharma, and, and by this time, he just wanted to hold on to power. And there's a, there's a famous uh, statement he made, a very famous statement, where his advisors, Bhishma, Drona, they're all advising him, make peace with the Pandavas, don't fight them, and uh, give them back their land. And Duryodhana says, I won't, he said, I will not give them enough land to, to put a pin, isn't it? I will not give them enough land to even to stick a pin. In other words, nothing. The Pandavas, so again, I was saying about Krishna, Krishna himself was a leading figure in trying to avoid the battle. So if you just read the Bhagavad Gita, you see Krishna encouraging Arjuna to fight, but Krishna, before this war, himself was a leading figure in the diplomacy trying to avoid the war. And, uh, in fact, the Pandavas at one point said, look, we are Kshatriyas. It is our dharma to rule. And if we don't act as Kshatriyas, we can't follow our dharma. Therefore, give us five villages. We'll rule five villages. And Duryodhana said, no. That's when he said, no, not enough land to stick a pin. And so there were many attempts at diplomacy, Vidura. Finally, Krishna himself, Krishna himself came to Hastinapur as an ambassador trying to make peace. Trying to make peace. And uh, all the same people in Hastinapur welcomed him and recognized who he was. But Duryodhana and Karna, again, poor Karna, who's always misunderstood and really was you know, a great guy. Duryodhana and Karna actually try to arrest Krishna. They have, a, they have a plan. And he's an ambassador. I mean, even today, according to modern international, modern law, that that's criminal behavior to try to arrest an ambassador that's come in peace. And Krishna is trying so hard, Krishna is trying so hard to avoid the war that he even reveals a, a bit of his virat rupa, that cosmic form, before the people there, Karna, Duryodhana, and so on, to show them that, look, you're not going to win this war. So he sort of gave them a calling card by showing them this but Duryodhana, by that time, was so insane with his personal ambition, anger, and demonic qualities, he thought, oh, you know, it's just something a magician does. It's almost like a reverse of that famous scene in the Old Testament where Moses, uh, well, no, it's actually a similar thing where Moses comes before the Pharaoh and says, let my people go, and then he throws down his staff and it becomes a serpent. And uh, the Pharaoh thinks, ah, cheap magic, and he calls his own magicians to, you know, to make servants. And so it's, it's almost a scene like that where Duryodhana and Karna think this is, well, Duryodhana thinks this is just magic, you know. He doesn't understand that this is really Krishna. So all these attempts fail. All these attempts fail and there's going to be war. And so the next part of the Mahabharata Again, from the Pandava side, first of all, fighting to save the world from the Asuras. And even from a human point of view, fighting to restore government by Dharma. The word Dharma also means law. And so you find throughout this culture, throughout the story, that people cite Dharma exactly as in modern times we would cite the law. They cite Dharma, that this is Dharma or it's not Dharma. So it's very much a consciousness of living according to an objective set of laws as opposed to absolute monarchy where the king just, you know, off with their heads, just does whatever the king wants. So, uh, the next
next stage is a sort of this very, um, how should I put it, intense, all these intense efforts on both sides to secure allies. And uh, because there are, there are a certain number of great kingdoms in that part of the world, and so the Pandavas and Duryodhana are doing everything possible to secure allies. Uh, ultimately, uh, 18 great armies. The Sanskrit is Akshohini. And Akshohini was sort of a full army that consists of thousands of infantry and so many uh, chariots and cavalrymen and, uh, so, and so on and so forth, elephants. So a full, a complete Vedic army, or, or just army from that time, was called Akshoginis. And it said that in this battle there were 18 Akshoginis. The battle lasted 18 days. There's 18 books of the Mahabharata. Mahabharata so it's, it's the story of 18. So anyway, so 18 great armies came to Kurukshetra. And uh, of those, 11 sided with Duryodhana and seven with the Pandavas. So, that's why in the first chapter of Bhagavad Gita, when Duryodhana goes to Drona, just to make sure, because Drona was very affectionate toward the Pandavas, Arjuna had been his favorite student, and uh, Bhishma had raised the Pandavas. So, so there were very, very strong emotional ties between Bhishma and Drona and the Pandavas, and Duryodhana went to Drona. Uh, what is that... Uh, so Drishtva, however, seeing the great Pandava army assembled there in formation, Duryodhana went to his Acharya, went to his teacher, approached, approaching his teacher, spoke these words. And then, uh, and then Duryodhana sort of simultaneously bragging bragging about um, their own power our forces are unlimited protected by Bhishma whereas their forces are limited so at this point at this point when the two armies are assembled and Krishna has agreed that Krishna won't personally fight but he will drive Arjuna's chariot in fact so at that point uh, the Bhagavad Gita begins so we're actually at the, at the beginning of the Bhagavad Gita. And uh, Arjuna looks upon these armies, and of course, not only are Bhishma and Drona emotionally attached to him, but Arjuna is also attached to them. He sees his guru. And, uh, I mean, you imagine back then, there was this extremely, very strong guru-disciple culture. So here he's looking upon his guru. He's looking upon Bhishma, who practically raised him as a child when he lost his father. And uh, he knows, and, and, and Nakula and Sadade, the, the twins, are looking at their uncle. Uh, Shalya, <coughs> Shalya, the brother of their mother, of their departed mother, is fighting for Duryodhana. <coughs> because basically, as he admits later in the story, he's been bribed. And uh, he, he's fighting against them. Their uncle, so here they, so it's, uh, if you think of the American Civil War, often families were divided, especially near the border areas. And so, uh, Arjun looks upon all these people that he's known all his life, his, you know, family, guru, and this is what he says, and, and, and so at this point, the Bhagavad Gita begins. And Arjuna uh, has an unprecedented 
unprecedented, not loss of nerve, he wasn't afraid, but he, uh, and this was always an issue, because again, I'll make this last point I'll make, and then uh, tonight I guess we'll talk about the Bhagavad Gita, and, and then the end of the story. Uh, the Pandavas were raised as Brahmins, as yogis, and, and so if you think of it, a great sage, a yogi, a Brahmin, their tendency is just to tolerate. In fact, that's one of the uh, main teachings to a yogi, is it just don't be attached to things in this world. Just be tolerant, uh, be equipoised, uh, avoid the dualities of attachment and hatred, uh, don't worry about victory and defeat, and so on and so forth. And so there was always this sort of little undertow in the minds of the Pandavas, like, why are we doing all this? Why are we fighting like this? And of course, it was Krishna's mission, they had to do it. The world was at stake, but personally, in terms of their own emotions, uh, many of the Pandavas, not Bhima, but many of the other Pandavas uh, really thought, personally, I don't care. Personally, I don't even want a kingdom. And so it was this emotion that was always present in the Pandavas because of who they were, because they were great souls, they were actually enlightened yogis, and they were friends of Krishna. So as Arjun looked upon the battlefield, he sort of suddenly, that feeling, which was, had always been there, but had always been subordinated to their dharma, their duty, the need to protect the world, suddenly just overwhelmed Arjun, these emotions. And that's when he put down his bow and uh, told Krishna, I can't do this. So, we'll conclude this evening. Thank you very much.